0: All right, so we're in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 24. Massive passage. Um, Tina, thank you for an amazing reading job in half the New Testament. That was really good. So you, you saw how long the passage was today. In order to be responsible with our time that we have today, um, I'm, I'm going to move rather quickly through the first half of this passage. I'm going to read it with you. I mean, I'm going to vocalize it. Your eyes are going to read it. And I'm going to read it with some descriptions as we go along because I think it's rather self-evident where it goes. I'm going to slow down at the second half of the passage and circle in on a few things. So um, if you've never been here before and you've never been to our service, a little bit different. We usually don't celebrate our deacons in the middle and uh, we usually don't hit passages quite this big. But we are going our way through Romans and uh, Romans is an amazing book and it has all this like deep, deep economics of the Bible. It's perhaps the deepest engine room in the ship of the scriptures, right? So we go down to it and we just see things that aren't anywhere else in scriptures. And Hebrews would be kind of similar. It has some different ways, but, but Romans is like, that's, that's, the, that's like the motor box of the whole ship down here. So there are things in it that are really hard to understand. There are some things in it that, that God just shows us the tip of things that he wants us to understand and then doesn't show us things beyond that. And there are things in there though, when we really understand what they are, they, be, they become extremely helpful for us understanding the whole of the Scriptures, understanding God's heart and what He's doing. So please do have a copy in front of you um, on phone or on paper or vigorously leaning over next to the person next to you just because I want you to be able to read this. Let me just pray, and we'll start. Father, through Jesus, I, a sinner, am forgiven and loved by you and uh, made righteous by the work of Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection. And so I stand in that and we stand in that together. We come to you and we want to be taught again by you. We want your words because your words are life. So please uh, quicken our minds and our hearts to be attentive to the things you say. Uh, We love you and we thank you for how good you are to us and even just for the goodness of each other that you've given so we can come together And look at your word together today. So please be with me as I speak. Be with us all as we listen to your word. Uh, For the sake of your name and your glory. For the help of our hearts and our minds. In Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Romans 11 verses 1 to uh, 24. We start out with this idea that God approaches humanity. Namely through communicating to one man. His name is Abraham. God comes to Abraham, an unworthy man like you and like me and says, I want to do the, salvi- the salvific work. Not because you're amazing, Abraham, but because I'm gracious. He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and then I'm going to reach the world through that nation. That nation eventually becomes a place called Israel, people called Israel. And God, through that nation, is going to pour out the information of his heart and his character and his nature, boom, through them. Through them, he establishes his prophets. His prophets land and those people, right? And so we learn about the God of heaven through the God of Israel, Because God made the Israel as a tool through which he would communicate to the world. So that's where our passage starts at. And it's been part of the argument going all the way through this book. So, so far in the book, we found that God has a special attachment to the Jewish people. All over, by the way, in case, case is new to you. Jewish people, Jews, Israel. We're going to use those things interchangeably here. We realize that there are cultural Jews, people that might be um, Irish by descent, but living in within Judaism. There are true like genetic Jewish people. They are Jewish people. Some of us here are full-blooded Jewish people genetically or partially. And then there are there is the religion of the Jews, right? So there's multiple pieces going into this, but God actually is weaving those two in the beginning of a physical people that have a religious system that was given by him, not by them. Now over time, their hearts got wandering, and they started twisting it, and though they remained keeping with the name of God, they loved that God, supposedly, their hearts drifted from him, and so they would celebrate uh, ceremoniously that God, but the heart was not behind it. So, so far, God has an attachment to the Jewish people overall. Individually, it is not about being a physical descendant of Abraham, but a God-appointed spiritual lineage of Abraham. That's in chapter 9. In chapter 9, verse 26, 23, 26, he's making that people, he's making this people around the world eventually with both Jewish and non-Jewish people, and he had advertised it in the Old Testament through the Jewish prophets. And third thing we get is his people who are, are the starting out point, Israel, they spiraled into unbelief together. Not every one of them, but as a whole, Israel spiraled into unbelief in God being their needed Savior that they must call out to, and instead started relying on their own merit and their own worth. And as a whole people, the Jewish culture and religion has continued in this rejection to this very day to the point of rejecting the Jewish Messiah that came, whose name is Jesus. So that's kind of our history kind of catching up to this. Today, in this passage, God wants you and I to know where our faith and our salvation came through. Not so much the giver of that faith, the Father, and the provider of that salvation, who is Jesus, but, but here, the stewards and the human lineage of that faith, he wants us to know where it comes from. It's important to God for you to know where your faith comes through, the lineage. <clears throat> he wants us to remember that in God's plan, the Jewish people have a central place in that plan and to respectfully be thankful for us Gentiles' ability to sit in their blessings and hope for the return to our rightful Father. Okay. I don't know you. You might be 100% Jewish today, or 50, or 30, or whatever. I'm just going to count us all as a bunch of Gentiles from the room, okay? We are hanging out on the other side of the globe from where this is written, okay? So I'm going to address us as Gentiles, just as actually Paul addresses the Romans as Gentiles. So welcome to Gentilehood, all right? So I'm going to commonly refer to us as Gentiles, and we as Gentiles need to be respectful and thankful to God affording us an opportunity to come into his plan, which was given and, to, and rightly belongs to the God of the Jews. And so again, here in this section, God continues to share with us high and important information. He's letting us into things way beyond us. He shares pieces of information, his plan, his motives, his control over faith and unbelievers' authentic responsibility. And he does so without providing answers for how some of these elements seem to collide into one another. So this has been a theme in this book for chapters. God says amazing things about himself things that don't start from us, things that start from him. And he puts things out there, and some of those things seem to collide into his, uh, to each other logically in our minds. He's very well aware of that. He's exposing who he is and his plan that it was way beyond us, and he wants us to know those things. But he also, at times, doesn't bring closure to those things. <clears throat> he's wanting us to know certain pieces. So he's doing so without providing answers for how some of these elements seem to collide into each other. And the non-collisions are his secrets for now, but these elements are the most important ones. It's critical information for us to function on. So please take a look at verse 1 and 2. Our first point today is, and again, this is, we're going to go fast this, so feel free to stack up your questions for later if you want. <clears throat> Number one, God has not rejected the Jewish people. Number one, God has not rejected the Jewish people, verses 1 and 2. I ask that, has God rejected his people? By no means for I myself am an Israelite, this is Paul speaking, I am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 portions of Israel. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. He knew, not, not speaking of knowing about them, foreknowing about them, or foreknowing what they would do, but in a relational sense. He knew as in really loved, entered into a special relationship with them nationally before creation. So God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, in love and in relationship. Second one, uh, verses 3 to 6. God holds Israel through providing a remnant of believers at all times. Do you, do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. This is in First Kings 19. Lord, they have killed your prophets. <clears throat> they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, Baal is the current false prophet, uh, false religion, and a false worldview that was in the land of Israel at that time that had really become popular in social media back then, <coughs> which was rocks and pigeons, I guess. So, but, so at that time, we had, we had the worship of Baal, and it shows up. that guy shows up time and time again through the Old Testament, and it was a religion and a worldview that was um, false and grieved the heart of God. Verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So God says, back then, I had pres- been preserving a remnant of my people that wouldn't spiral out of belief, that actually do believe the Lord. And even to this day, God provides a remnant. He's always sustaining a pile of people in the nation, and the people of Israel, who actually do know Jesus, who do count him as their Messiah. <clears throat> so again, like chapter 9, reinforcing that God is in control, here the provider of a remnant of believing Jews by His act of grace. And so regardless of the moment, the grand church around the world always has a rich vein of believers who are Jewish, and they themselves being the remnant of God that's providing for Israel. Um, often we call them messianic Jews. Now. so if you heard that concept Messianic Judaism, that, is, that what it is that's what it is. The people who are genetically, culturally Jewish people who embrace Jesus as the Jewish Messiah for them and the whole world and their treasure. Verse 6, but if, but if it is by grace, so he says in verse 5, so too at the present time there's a remnant chosen by grace. So he's he's really highlighting the fact of this being in God's hand. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. S- so again, contrary to the dominant thought amongst the Jewish religion at that time, and still to this time, God is again eliminating even the notion of merit-based acceptance with God. For anybody, there is no human-based merit acceptance with God. Back to the verse, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. We learn, just take for a moment here, we learn something very special and unique about the nature of what grace is and how it works in this passage. So the argument is, verse 6, but if by grace it is no longer on the base of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The grace of God and human merit are mutually exclusive in their saving effect. Worth will be from God or it will be from man to some level. It can't be both. Grace is full and alone or it's nothing. It is complete in soul provision and if grace is reduced from the status of soul provision then it morphs into something totally different. It's not grace anymore. At best it's like a booster. A booster to your efforts, a booster to your, your merits. Ceasing to be grace. God's provided merit through the righteousness of Jesus is never a booster or an additive to human merit. If a person is to be accepted by God, then then the provided merit must be completely through Christ's merit and not an ounce of our own supposed merit. Salvation always has been grace, always has been an utter gift of God through faith. It is never of human merit or nationality. So when we talk gospel a lot here, when we talk a lot about resting in Jesus, we talk a lot about grace. Why? Because God Himself is the Savior through Jesus Christ. And we are not, not, not even partially. He's not the starter, we're the finisher. He is the beginning and the ending of our merit, the beginning and the ending of our righteousness. It becomes extraordinarily important for that to be settled in our minds and then pushed through to our hearts. Because I, for one, this morning, had that rising up in my heart. Now, I wasn't thinking, man, I got some merit today. But you know what my heart was saying? Man, I got some merit today. Um, And yesterday, it didn't go so hot. So I didn't have so much merit yesterday, right? So my heart is emotionally telling me that this creeps in. So the duration of our life is we're always looking to Jesus and pushing out of the concept of God's pure, complete, full grace, the inbound notion of your own merit because it's going to creep up on you like a fungus. It always will. And so we keep going back to that celebrating communion time and time again for us every other week because it's reminding, reminding Jesus has given us The salvation is by grace given through the hands of Jesus and not you and not me. And so we gather around a piece of bread and lift it up and say, one who is righteous. One who is my substitute. And then we take that cup and we celebrate how we did it, the death. Not just one who's righteous, but one who gave us his righteousness through his death. So grace is of complete importance. And the reason it can't be works, um, faith in works is because it is of grace. And faith is the scooper to grace. It's how you get it. You have grace from God, not from your own merit. Verse, uh, verse 7 to 10, our next point. <clears throat> Where God did not give grace, he amplified the rejection. Um, and I have lost my water bottle. I swear I lost my water bottle. Where'd it go? Um, if someone could give me a little swig of water, that would be great. In a cup, not... Yeah, okay, great, thank you. <coughs> <coughs> Where God did not give grace, He amplified the rejection. Verse seven: What then? Israel failed to obtain what he was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as is written in Isaiah twenty-nine, ten. God gave them a spirit <coughs> spirit of super, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. Down to this very day, and David says in Psalm sixty-nine: Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block. Thanks, brother. A stumbling block. And a retribution for them and let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So where God did not give grace, he amplified their rejection, brought on a hardness that like amplified it and brought into really deep, noticeable pain. So the mark of their judgments passage was further spiritual blindness where blessings of God actually became the instruments of entrapping themselves. That's why it says, let their table become a snare. So one of the signs of hardness of heart are the good things God gives actually become the things that we poison ourselves with. We use God's good things in wrong ways. So this is just like how Jesus, in the past chapter, the great cornerstone became an obstacle to the unbelieving Jewish people that really got in their way. Jesus, the chief cornerstone, had become, to the rejecting heart, the stumbling stone, instead of the cornerstone, and the rock of offense. And in their blindness, Jesus became the stumbling stone to their own agenda and the shin-breaking rock that really offended their self-righteousness. And Jesus will do that to every last one of us. He will be everything to us, the one that we trust, we build our foundation on. Or eventually, if you really listen to him, he will hack you off and he will get in your way and he will stumble you up in your plans and he will offend you in your sense of merit. And I would just say for a moment, if you sense that, if you sense the offense to your righteousness and your merit because of what Jesus is saying, run to him and yield to him. And if all of a sudden you realize, man, he, I, I'm, really, I'm really stumbled because it seems like he would really get in the way of my plans. Give him your plans. He is a wonderful king. He is so wise. He's so good, full of compassion. He knows what you need. You don't. You don't have the solutions. He does. So don't let him be a stumbling stone and a rock of offense like he was here in this judgment because if you do find that, it's a demonstration of a heart that is hard. Look at verse 11 to 12. Israel's rejection of Messiah enabled Gentiles to access the Messiah. I told you to go fast today. You didn't believe me? I'm going fast. <clears throat> Israel's rejection of Messiah enabled Gentiles to access the Messiah. So I ask did they stumble in order that they might fall, that the Israel might fall away permanently? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more? where their full inclusion mean. And this is fleshed out in the following verses here, verse 13 to 16. Gentiles' joy in the Messiah will draw some of Israel to God. Gentiles' joy in the Messiah will draw some of Israel to God. Verse 13. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. He means this. Paul was a Jewish guy, super highly trained Jewish guy, theologian, who then God put on task to talk to a bunch of non-Jewish people. Kind of an odd plan of events. You'd think that his plan would be like, well, I'm really trained in Judaism. I should probably take on the Jews. God said, no, actually, I'm going to take that and put you towards the Gentiles. So he's elevating his ministry to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow, but he still loves the Jewish folks, his home folks, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So the dynamic God is creating is where individually here and later nationally, so individually here, later nationally, unbelieving Jewish people look over and see how much joy the believing Gentiles have <clears throat> in living in the sweetness of being under the love of the Jewish God. So this is the dynamic. And more of this will come in the second half of this chapter that we're not going to hit today. Part of God's design is when we as Gentiles rest in Jesus and taste of the goodness, not just sideline them, not just like sprinkle a little bit of Jesus gospel in our lives to make it all Christian-y, american but actually live under the goodness of God. And we enjoy it. God has designed that so that to the people of the Jews, they would look over and go, Look at the joy, look at the happiness, look at the blessing they are receiving under the God who is ours and under the Messiah who is ours. It's meant to stir their hearts into jealousy, not a sinful jealousy, but a rightful jealousy. God's a jealous God for good stuff. He's stirring their hearts under jealousy to look at him when they see us enjoying the goodness of God. Verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So in short, and we will flesh this out a little more next week, as the Jewish people place their faith in Jesus, it becomes all the better for the Gentile believers as well. So we find our pathway of life in God's plan through God's people corkscrewing off the side and not believing. Right? And God uses that then to bring that message out of Israel that's isolated, boom, to around the world. But then what happens is, as that message settles around the world, and the Jewish people eventually look at that and they see it and they see how good it is, God uses that to call them back to himself. And what Paul says is when they come back to him, it's all the better even for us. We got life on the first go, and when they repent, we're blessed way, way more on top of that. <coughs> Okay, okay, I'm going to say it. i got time. I've been reading well. Okay, just, just a moment. This is, this is a little, little bit of a deeper interpretive thing for you guys. Okay, so just uh, for those of you guys that, are, that are, are, are advancing and trying to figure out how do I interpret Scripture as well, just notice verse 15 for a second. Verse 15 says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, of the world, that's holistic language, the world, Okay. When we're trying to understand what God is saying in the scriptures, um, there's a way that you'd read that, Probably, maybe the most natural way we read the world means the whole world and every single person in the world. That's how we would most naturally read the world. But I'd like to take this as, a, I think it's a very helpful example here. When we are reading more broadly than just one line, and we realize that there's a bunch of chapter around this here, which we call context, um, we, we, we understand passages and interpret things through the context. And in the context of this statement, um, it the holistic language sounds like the whole world and everyone in the world, but it's not. It sounds like universal reconciliation to us, but it's not. We know that because verse 10 speaks etern- of eternally unreconciled people. Verse 20, 22 talk about people unreconciled as they're cut off. 9 verse 22, vessels of wrath. 9 verse 27, only a remnant would be saved. So everything around it, written by the same God, written by the same guy, in the same book, in the same chapter, says not everyone in the whole world will be reconciled. So in your reading ability, reading Scripture sometimes, when you see things like this, holistic words like the world, mankind, um, be careful about saying, when he uses a holistic term about adding do you think that that means every single person within the whole of that? Just be, just be cautious of that. It may mean that, but that's you. We're usually helped with different terms like all and every and words like that. So I just want to put it out there as an example, and it might become very helpful when you try to figure out and use John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And you're like, there it is. God loves every single soul, every single person, just as much. Be very careful. Be very, very careful with that because. Two things, it's probably not being fair with how God uses holistic language. When God uses holistic language, He is primarily setting bounds of it, scopes of it, but he's not trying to talk about the thoroughness within it. We find thoroughness within it within small words like at all and every, but he uses these whole words as he deals with holistic people. So we ought to be very careful with that, and the effects of those things can be very, very um, amazing for us because if we take some of the things, such as reconciliation of the whole world, or God's love for the whole world, and we use those words too lightly and too quickly, all of a sudden we can erode the amazing things that God has promised to you as a, ch- a loved child of God because the love that he has for you as a son or daughter is not the same perspective he has for the rest of every single person in the entire world. So just an interpretive thing for a moment as you think about it, be cautious about holistic language as you see in the New Testament. Don't assume that it is both span and span and thoroughness in those terms. All right, I just close that up just for your stuff. Feel free to talk to me about it more later on. Verse sixteen twenty one. <coughs> Humble belief is the demand for our inclusion into God's people. Humble belief is the demand for our inclusion into God's people. I think I put up here. I put as essential for the inclusion into God's people. And I want to slow down a little bit here at this point. So uh, we've been kind of running fast through here, but here's what I want to slow down a little bit. What follows is an analogy or a parable of olive farming. Now, not too many of us here are all farmers. I know that's true. Even the farmers here. We don't farm olives in Ohio to my knowledge. Um, So the picture is this. Um, There are a number, um, and I submit myself to the farmer folks in this room. Namely the ones sitting against the wall in the back underneath the last sconce over there. So um, uh, what you have sometimes in in plants is you have uh, a variety. I'm going to use the walnut plant, for example, in this. I'm um, sorry, no parasitic birds today. I'm coming to that someday. Uh, so she sent me a nice article on parasitic baby birds. So um, didn't fit in this text. Walnuts fit in the text. So what happens, uh, my grandpa, Paul Smith, um, we're in California, and my grandpa loves nuts, and he loved walnuts, which I don't love. And um, I remember he would take me out into these orchards because we had some nut farmers in the family, and um, we'd grow walnuts. And um and he would he would he would I notice on the bottom, the bottom of the walnuts in particular, there's this like bulgy line down there at the bottom of it. And what it was was the top part of the tree is an English walnut. Those are the good walnuts. If you go out in the forest here, we have black walnuts out here, and you make great cabinets out of them, but the walnuts are pretty small and, and I hear they're less tasty than they usually are, and they have extra thick, crusty things on them. And so these are black walnuts. You can do it, bake yourself a loaf, but it's not as good as the English walnuts. That's what you get out of the store. So, but the problem with English walnuts are, though they make really great things, mm-hmm. they don't do so well in the soil of California. Um, different funguses and stuff like that, but you know what works really good in California? Black walnuts. So they plant a black walnut tree, let it get up, whoop, and they come in there and they, they take off the black walnut tree and they graft in an English walnut onto the top of it. So now this, and so that, that English walnut doesn't taste any different, it tastes just like English wa- walnuts um, with the big juicy things, right? But it's, it's living off of this very stable, drought-resistant, fungus-resistant root. And out of that, it lives in a place it can never live before because it's living off of a new root being grafted in. So they do the same thing with olives. You take an olive tree, and you take an established one, and you go to a little teeny, sprouty olive thing that's wild. And it looks good right now, but it has, it's not, doesn't have a long, fruitful life coming for it. And so you snip it off and you're going to graft it into an established olive plant so that it lives off of that and actually gives unique and good fruit. Okay, so that's our analogy. Did I work okay at that? Good, thanks. All right. In this analogy, the olive tree root and trunk represent God's corporate people. God's corporate people are always tricky in the Bible. They're always tricky. You have the nation of Israel. They're God's people. But not every single person in the nation of Israel actually knows god in the new testament we have the church and you have to be born again in the church but all we just heard one of them there are people born into the church right Um, but they have to be born again to actually be in the church but you could be born physically born into god's people or you could just kind of roll into god's people and like them for a long time and kind of be counted as one of them right how many people are in church we say I, i don't know 130 people Old, young, kids, those kind of things, but not all of them are truly part of God's church until they actually come to know Jesus, put their faith in Jesus, are born again. And so both the Old Testament and New Testament people of God have a corporate identification, but within it there may be people who do not believe. Does that make sense? So here starts the analogy where the olive tree root and trunk represent God's corporate people, and particularly in this analogy here, Israel. <clears throat> the branches are the individuals that are attached to the people of God, and they are people who carry the name of God, being God being their God and Father. They identify as God's people, and it has become, especially His people as family, is clear in the New Testament. They carry that name and claim to be branches by authentic, authent- authentically um, having personal belief in Jesus, or by association, being born or hitchhiking along with the authentic believers. Okay, so let me say it again. They carry the name Christian, or shall we say, in this sense here, carry the name one of God's people (coughs) through authenticity or through association. Authenticity being genuine personal belief or association, they're not really having personal belief, but they were born or they're hanging out or they think they're part of God's people, okay? So those people together make up this tree, Verse 16, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. So what's true of the root must be true of the branches too. It's inappropriate to have bad branches on a good tree. Verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, unbelieving Jewish people in this context here, and you, although a wild little olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, So if you Gentile Christian are now enjoying the sweet benefits of the Jewish God who gave the Old Testament and New Testament, and we are, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches, the natural ones in particular. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Remember, it's not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. So just brief gospel truth here. There's a massive, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a massive massive decentralizing of ourselves. So when we wake up on this planet, born in the church, born outside the church, wherever you're at, um, you are a self-centered ecosystem, right? You decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's good and bad. You decide what's satisfying. It's just really about us. Then we can, we can shade that into the name of different religions and different things like that, but we are center. <clears throat> so the gospel itself is this incredible work of decentralizing us. It's a reference to that. Um, we are we are we are not what supports the, the root, the root supports us. And that's not only true with how the gospel decentralizes us in the in, in the gospel itself, but the gospel's not primarily the the gospel's not primarily the good news for you. Guess that. The gospel's not primarily the good news for you, nor is the kingdom or king lucky to have you. You and I are beneficiaries of God. And his promises which were given to the Jewish people. The gospel is the good news of God, not primarily the good news to you. It's good news with regard without regard to whatever you choose to do of it or think about it. It is the good news. So there's a there's a flipping here. He's referencing the decentralization of us in the gospel. Um, God Himself, through his what's promises to Israel, become the foundation for us. You know, we're we're saved Christians. We are people that rest in the Messiah of Israel. We are stuck in that root, and we are alive because we're stuck in the room. We don't want to be stuck anywhere else. And you know what? We didn't belong in that root. And so if, if we're halfway in tune with this, what this is, we are thankful to be alive and to be there. And the last thing we are going to be is cocky. So, verse 19. <clears throat> then you will say, there's a, there's a sarcasm and a snarkiness here. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And, and fair reference to verse 11 where he talks about through the trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off, but because of unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. You stand securely and assured through faith. So, do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In 1991, one, two Somewhere there. I read this passage for the first time. And I was in fellowship with some, some people that were calling themselves Christians. Might have been Christians. I, I don't know. They were calling themselves Christians. We're hanging out. We're Christian folks doing Christian things. And some of them were really flippant and really kind of arrogant. And I remember reading this for the first time. And I had no clue the context whatever, but all of a sudden that thing popped off the page and like just like grabbed me by the throat in a very very good way. <clears throat> and half it was scary to me and half it was like very useful to my friends. Do not become proud, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. I didn't understand a whole lot about why it said what it said, but I could see with my clear eyes, do not be proud, but fear. And it was a moment for me where the Lord I think, very, in a very helpful way, help me remember my place. That in all this talk about grace and all this talk about the kindness of God, um, it does not, if we believe it, it does not move us to flippancy and it does not move us to look down at other people. The gospel brings us to flatness and our sin, right? So I can talk to you and you can talk to me because we're all just people saved by God's grace and we're saved, but that's Jesus' fault, not our fault, and so... We're together in this. We can talk laterally if we understand the concepts of the gospel. So I didn't understand the first time I read it. But then as we understand it a little bit more, it actually even packs even a stronger punch. So do not become proud. Why? Because that is not what faith does. Remember, he makes a focus. He goes, that is true. Verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But contrary, you stand fast through your faith. So stand fast is an active Hold tight phrase, right? You stand fast in your faith. So don't become proud. Why? Because proud has nothing to do with faith. Proud has everything to do with unbelief. So why not become proud? Because if you are proud, you are emanating the sense of unbelief. I know, babe. Okay. We have a little debate happening in the Burns household for 20 years about pride and unbelief. She's going to win today. I'm just going to tell her. (coughs) Not after lunch, but today, right now. Because that is not what faith does. Being proud of self is not consistent with the gospel truth that self is so humble and needy that I need a savior. It's the message of the gospel. And when the natural branches are not, uh, but it, and if when the natural branches are not spared, the Jewish people are not spared because of their prideful unbelief, then neither will you be if through pride you are demonstrating you are actually not believing. So this is not a passage about having salvation, losing salvation, this is a passage about being associated with the people of God, but maybe not actually being His. Because you're unbelieving, and you persist in that. You persist in it. You choose to stay unbelieving in Him and believing in some other thing that you think is better. So we, when we as Christians find evidence of a lack of humility in our lives, our reaction ought to be fear. Like when you smell smoke in the middle of the night and you throw the sheets off and you scramble half-dressed to the house looking for a fire, like it's not time to play around. We wouldn't do that with smoke at all. So just like that, when we discover pride or the potential of pride in our hearts, it is an all-bell fire alarm for us. I mean, we, f- we fear, like find it. Like is it possible that unbelief is rising in my heart? It's a terrible and dangerous sign and barricade of unbelief in your heart that must be repented of. And I just put it that way. It's a terrible and dangerous sign of unbelief and a barricade of unbelief in your heart. That's what it will do. Is it will, it will unbelief will take its root and then it will deploy defenses up against it. And so do not take pride lightly when you find it in your heart. God will not spare the proud because they persist in unbelief. It's clear. God will not spare the proud because they persist in unbelief. Finally, verses 22 to 24. (laughs) Note the kindness and severity of God. Oh, man, this is just so helpful. I mean, when you're developing, come. We've got 11 spots. Come join us for our gospel workshop stuff. Uh, We'll cover a lot of this kind of stuff. But notice this. Notice the kindness and the severity of God. When you think of Jesus, man, he's Savior and he's Judge. Think of Jesus, You think of God, think of the kindness and the severity of, of God. And you will rest, every soul rest on either full kindness or full severity of God. And it, the, harsh, the harsh and shocking disparity between those two things is the astounding part of the gospel. When you cut through all like the American cheesy stuff said about Jesus and you're reading what he says, you're like, oh my gosh, man, these are two zones I can live in. And I'm waking up in the bad zone. I'm waking up in the bad zone. Verse 22. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity. That's a severe word. Just saying. Severity towards those who've fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too, you too will be cut off. Me too will be cut off. And even they... Jewish Jewish people, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? The home of the Jewish nation, every Jewish person is the tree of God. As beautiful as it is for every one of us Gentiles to be reconciled to God, it is something uniquely beautiful when a Jewish person comes home to God through Jesus the Messiah. It's uniquely beautiful in God's eyes. And as we get it, more and more, it's uniquely beautiful in our eyes. So, I'd like you to notice two things here. Number one, notice the vast differences between the two types of humanity. The words here are very simple. Note, severity, kindness. Three simple words right there they are very, number one, take note. It's not just said, like, <laughs> it's tune in. Look at this severity, kindness. It's in the verse. I didn't make that up, right? So you're all seeing the verse. Note the severity and kindness of God. Severity towards those who've fallen. So in the end of uh, chapter 10 last week, God's standing there with outstretched arms, longing, calling people to himself with patience, right? So those arms are stretched out to those who are willingly staying where he is saying he will severely judge. He's sitting there calling, persisting, arms stretched out, and they're persistently folding theirs and pushing back. And he's saying, you're in a spot where I will be severe. Don't take his words lightly. He's warning clearly, loudly, and patiently. So if you're online, here, wherever you're at, you encounter this, and you are not embracing Jesus, God is warning you, and he's saying, come to me, come to me, come to me, And you do not want to stay where you're at because I will come with utter severity there and I will be severe towards you completely righteously and judiciously if you don't repent from that. Don't persist in unbelief. But for us who belong to Christ, he gives no portion of severity. And this is where you get gospel living, right? Christian brother and sister, you had a bad day yesterday, you had a great day yesterday, whatever it is, you have no severity from God. The grieving of the Spirit is not severe severity towards you. The sin you encounter will not bring God's severity towards you. His love is on you. You rest under the kindness and love of God. He loves you so much, he may discipline you, he may care for you, you may grieve his heart, but he is full of kindness towards you and no severity. The Father is telling you, believer, believer who stumbles, he is nothing but kindness for him, for you and for me. And despite what we rightly deserve, a father, kind, tender, patient, full of love... And the Spirit of God, through Paul, says, take note to the kindness of God towards you. See it. Know it. Preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. And then it says these words, but God's kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Provided you continue in his kindness. So there's our if, right? Severity is given to those who continue in unbelief, continue in being fallen, Choose to be that way. And kindness is given to those who continue in God's kindness. Continue in it. This is an interesting sentence. Number one, we must continue to persevere. This is not remotely the only place in Scripture. I didn't make slides for you. I will just reference a couple of these texts here. If God has done his work in us, we will persevere to the end, and we will do it actively by fighting to persevere to the end. Sometimes people ask me over the years, people say, hey, are you a once-saved-always-saved person? And I go, hmm. That's tough to say, because there's a way where I say, well, yes, because you can't lose your salvation. But usually when people ask that question, they're not really asking the answer that I would give, right? They're usually saying, they're, what, what's in their mind often is like, hey, are you saying that if you say the abracadabra prayer, that's all good no matter what? No, absolutely not. If you abracadabra are your way all day long. If, if you've actually come to the Lord, if you actually call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You will receive a new heart. And what that new heart will do, it will f- watch out for pride. It will watch out for unbelief. And it will actively do that till the day it gets to heaven. And God will preserve you. And the way he preserves you is give you a, a continual, ongoing heart that fights against unbelief and looking to the Savior. And it's this amazing EKG line in all your life. We, you don't have to sit there and go, oh, I hope I said that prayer right in eighth grade what does your heart do now? Are you growing in the gospel? Are you holding fast in belief to Jesus? Um, Or are you getting cold and casual? Are you getting arrogant? If you are, fear. Like run to the cross. Fear, that's smoke coming out there. Run to the cross. So once saved, always saved. That's a good question. I would love to kind of hear just talk gospel to such a person. But often that phraseology there um, represents a view that salvation could be gained by just simply saying something no matter really what the intent was. Um, But here's the deal. How do you know if you meant it when you were 14 at the youth camp and you gave your heart to Jesus? Take your pulse. Take your pulse. What's the fruit of your life? Does, does your fruit of your life match up with that? Are you seeing the Spirit of God do his work in you over your lives and causing perseverance? Or are you growing stale in unbelief? And if you are, fear, run to him. If, you, if you're seeing the, the fruit, praise God for that, right? We have confidence. He says this in Colossians 1, and 23, this if then. It's said time and time again, have confidence if you have good reason for confidence. It says, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting. Hebrews 3, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession to the end. Later on, Hebrews 3. For we have come to share in Christ. These are all settled, permanent things. Notice the language. We have. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm until the end. So just as confident as we know from God that he will not unadopt us, we also know that if that adoption is true, our newly regenerated heart will actively and knowingly and at times desperately persevere and cling to God in faith. The second thing is, Persevere in what? It's such a cool statement. Uh, just, just check out the statement. It's really neat. If you persevere, continue in his kindness. Continue in his kindness. That's not like continue being kind like he is kind. But you continue in his kindness. You listen to those promises and you put your faith in those promises. You rest in his love and his acceptance for you and you fight to stay there. That's where the perseverance stays. It's a perseverance of faith. In the end, this is not a warning about losing one's salvation. It's a warning about the dire possibility of you thinking you're in all your branch in the tree of God's people and not ever having really been one. But you don't have to sit. We don't have to sit in the silence and go, man, I sure hope I'm real. It's clear if you're real. You know the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've called out, and you fight against unbelief in your life. You fight to believe the promises of God. You, you get underneath the kindness of God pouring himself, and you live underneath it. You live in his love poured out. It will be fruit and demonstration of the fact that he really has done the work. He's not going to let you go. We as Christians are marked by a humility and a thankfulness for God, including us in his plan, which the root and foundation is his work in the Old Testament in Israel. And it becomes a living thing in our heart. Um, You have an understanding at a basic level. You'll live in the humble gratitude for God's grace and continuing perseverance in God's love and kindness as he extends it to you and we will learn to have a place in our heart for God's unique nation, Israel, to repent and come home to him. So let me pray, and we'll finish out our, our time. So Father, um, covered so many texts, and I pray that you'd now please be with us. and Give us heart to have a heart for the people of Israel as you have. And we would long for it like you long for it. Father, then give us a heart that is grateful and thankful for your great redemption and forgiveness in Jesus Christ and that we would be people of belief, and that we would be absolutely on guard for the advent of unbelief, the temptation to not believe you, and the pride that characterizes this. So, Father, let us be um, completely allergic to pride in our soul's alarmist fear. So, Lord, let us have that rightful spot of fear, and then let us, with that, run to the kindness and rest that we are under the kindness of you, Give us the ability to know how to um, properly assess and not live frantically in that. Um, Give us the ability to be authentic to it and not be um, foolish and assumptive in that. Help us with each other to discern the liveliness of faith in our hearts. We love you and we thank you for the life you've given us, the very complex plan and wonderful outworking of you that you've given us in this book. In Christ's name.